Hello again, we're going to get into clip number five here of our study of the first epistle of John. In previous study, we learned that John did not identify himself as the writer of the first epistle of John. We learned that the first epistle of John is not addressed to any specific person or church. We learned that the epistle was written to people who were already believers. The recipients of this epistle were mostly Gentile believers, but there was, as well, a lesser number of Jewish believers. The first epistle of John is traditionally believed to have been written by John, that is, by John the Evangelist, who is also referred to as John the Beloved, and as St. John, and also as John the Presbyter, which means an elder or a minister of the Christian church. The first epistle of John was written at Ephesus, and Ephesus was located in what is now the country of Turkey. In ancient times, this area was referred to as Asia Minor. John was an older man when he wrote this epistle, and he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as is the case with all of the Holy Bible. The epistle's content, language, and style are very similar to the Gospel of St. John, the second epistle of John, and the third epistle of John. The first epistle of John can be referred to as the Book of Joy. In chapter 1, verse Verse 4 we read, And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Just about everything I have said can be disputed by someone. Traditional ideas can be brought into question by new research and or new discoveries, people with good intentions and also people with intentions that are not so good. For the purpose of this study we will lean toward the traditional view as to who wrote the epistle and we will do so with the purpose of wanting to learn what God has to say to us through his word rather than looking for some Something to disagree about. Now for this study we're starting out with verse 1 of chapter 2 of the first epistle of John. Verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We know from what we have studied already that this epistle was not addressed to any specific church or individual, but in this first verse of chapter 2, John starts out by speaking to my little children. Let's look at these three words and what they mean, who John is referring to. The meaning here of my little children in the original Greek language is a term of kindly address by teachers to their disciples. The Holy Spirit is speaking here to born-again believers, children of God, and not to unbelievers. We are still in verse 1 of chapter 2 as we read, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. Now this part of the verse, if taken by itself and out of context, can seem a bit unreasonable, at least I hope so. Being housed in a tabernacle of flesh, that is, our bodies, we will sin. Christians, true believers, have two natures that war against each other, the nature of the flesh, which is worldly, and that of the Holy Spirit. The meaning here in this verse is not that we will be able to completely sin not, but that we are encouraged not to sin. We should not sin. The next part of this verse reads, And if any man sin, we have an advocate. And then the last part of the verse reads, And that advocate is Jesus Christ the righteous. Matthew Henry, in his Bible commentary, and in reference to the verse we are studying, states things in a different way. He does not state things in a different way as meaning to write a more accurate interpretation of this scripture from the original manuscripts, but rather to give a clearer understanding of applying this verse, verse 1 of chapter 2 of the first epistle of John, to our lives. He writes, These things write I unto you, not that you sin, but that you may see your remedy for sin. Now to verse 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
and he. He in this verse refers to Jesus. Propitiation means we have atonement, which means the reconciliation of God and humankind through Jesus Christ. Now the next part of this verse reads, and not for ours only, this is referring to our sin, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we read all of verse 2 again. And he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. As we read this verse, we can easily see that if we don't study to understand the word, it would be possible to misinterpret the meaning of verse 2. It is certainly true that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John was clear that the power of Jesus' sacrifice, his shed blood, was made available to all people of the world. These words resemble John chapter 3 verse 16, which reads, For God so loved the world. This doesn't mean that every person will actually be saved. It does, however, mean that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to pay the sin debt for anyone who comes to him in faith. There is a distinction between Christ's power to potentially save all people and those who actually come to him for salvation. The book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 17, and I'm going to read this from the New International Version. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. The book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 4 reads, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. John 3.16 reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now we go to verse 3, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. We are studying scripture by reading verses and then making sure that we have some attempt at a good understanding of what each part of a given verse is telling us. We are not just reading to hear the melodious flow of the words of the King James Version or to mechanically listen to the words of a more modern translation and then walk away feeling all fuzzy and delighted that we have allowed God's Word to penetrate perhaps a tiny bit into our massive brains. Because we are studying with at least an effort at a deeper understanding and appreciation of the word, we will occasionally find ourselves reading a verse that will challenge our understanding and unfortunately perhaps mental retention. It is possible that we are reading such a verse now. Verse 3 of chapter 2. Chapter 2 of what book? The first epistle of John. I repeat these things for me and for you because we are traveling around a bit in the Bible don't want to get lost. Verse 3, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. The first part of this verse, and hereby we do know that we know him, and hereby, or in other words, by this means, we know that we know him. We know that we know him. Who is him? Jesus, of course. There are people that say they know Jesus, and they don't. It might seem that I am getting off on a tangent here, but there's no point in continuing from here without talking about Jesus. It doesn't matter what I say uh, about who Jesus is, but it does matter what the Bible says. Let's look at another Bible verse, King James Version, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. It reads, For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, 
or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Now the World English Bible Version, reading the same verse, and it reads, and I do this for clarification, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or if ye receive a different spirit which you did not receive, or a different good news which you did not accept, you put up with that, well enough. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth. This church had many problems for sure. As suggested in the verse just read, there were, there were people who preached another Jesus. There were people then who believed in this other Jesus, and there are people today that believe in a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Apostle Paul was telling the people in the Corinthian church that there were church members among them who were readily accepting and preaching and teaching unsound doctrine, doctrine that was not what they had originally received. They were straying away from the true Jesus, straying away from the true spirit, straying away from the true good news of the word. They were accepting Satan's counterfeit Jesus, Jesus and listening willingly to a false spirit, thus denying truth. And again, they were doing this willingly. They were much more desirous to accept teachings that offered them a counterfeit Jesus rather than to retain the truth of what they had been taught about the true Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing has changed. Time doesn't change human nature. A lot of people say they know Jesus today and they really don't know him at all. They have constructed another Jesus by accepting false doctrine and not searching into the Word of God for themselves. They design a false Jesus that suits their needs and fits nicely into whatever modern thought or current philosophy they have absorbed. Some of these people consider themselves and their false Jesus to be absolutely superior to anything else that might introduce a little discomfort into their lives or show them for what they truly are. They sometimes put forth this falsely constructed designer Jesus to condemn anyone who differs from their ideas on almost anything they consider unacceptable in thought. And Many times their attitude manifests itself as the real hate they have for true Christians. The first epistle of John, chapter 3, verse 14. Jump ahead here and read this. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. The word brother here refers to other Christians, true Christians, who truly believe and trust in the word of God. Remember, we are in the book of the first epistle of John, the second chapter and verse 3, and we are wandering around in the Bible with a purpose. And hereby we do know that we know him. The first half of verse 3. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior, you believe in the power, you believe in the ability of his shed blood to save you, to reconcile you to God the Father, to save you from your sins. What God demands, God provides. We can't save ourselves through good works or by creating a designer Jesus. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior, then you know that Jesus was fully human. The book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Looking into the meaning of the word man in this scripture verse, and going to the original Greek, for example, in Strong's Concordance, the proper definition for the word man, as used in this verse, is simply a human being. And in another reference book that speaks to the original Greek meaning in this particular verse, it reads, spoken in reference to his, that is Jesus's, human nature, a man, a human being, a mortal. Now we are still dealing with the verse 3 of chapter 2 of the first epistle of John, and we are still looking at just the first part of this verse, and hereby we do know that we know him. We, we just read in the Word that Jesus, the Word, was a man. And guess what? Jesus was God in flesh. The book of St. John, chapter 1, 
Verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. St. John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. St. John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. The Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and I'm going to read this from the English Standard Version. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 13 in the English Standard Version reads, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, what God demands, only God can provide. Do you have trouble with Jesus being the God-man? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, King James Version reads, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. We must have faith in God's word. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 in the English Standard Version reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 10:17 English Standard Version, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. I want to read some things from a commentary book I have written by Oliver Green. It is a commentary book on the book of Philippians. It reads, all who deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus are lost, hopeless, helpless, and hell-bound. There is no saving faith, no salvation, apart from his resurrection. That is, Jesus' resurrection. Resurrection, Christ being risen from the dead. If you do not believe that about Jesus, then you have willingly put your faith in a counterfeit Jesus, a Jesus not found in the Word of God. Let me read another paragraph out of this commentary. When we embrace Christianity through faith in the finished work of Jesus, we accept all that he was and all that he did to pay the sin debt. When he was crucified, we were crucified with him. When he arose from the dead, we arose with him. And positionally, we sit with him now in heavenly places. That's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. The doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Jesus and of all believers is the one tremendous truth that distinguishes Christianity from all other religions on earth. Okay, the first epistle of John chapter 2, verse 3. And now the last part of that verse reads, If we keep his commandments, and hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. As Christians, we are not under the old Mosaic law. We are not under those commandments. There's a lot of commentary on the last part of this verse, if we keep his commandments. So I want to end this study clip not by going into why Christians are not under the commandments of the Mosaic law. We have liberty in Christ and we have the grace of God when we accept Jesus as our Savior. If we keep his commandments, particularly those commandments of faith and love. We are commanded to love the brethren. Thank you. I hope you will be here for the next segment. I'll see you there.